Welcome to In Layman's Terms, a podcast dedicated to discipleship and putting scripture to use in our daily lives. I'm your host, Todd Seifert. I'm the Communications Director for the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, comprised of approximately 1,000 churches in Kansas and Nebraska. As the title of this podcast suggests, I'm not ordained clergy, so what I share comes to you in layman's terms. I have more than 20 years of experience teaching the Bible to everyone from teens to 90-somethings, and I'm excited to share what Scripture has to say to us in today's society, and I love to tell stories of how people live their faith. Some episodes focus on a person or church doing great things to serve as the hands and feet of Christ. Some episodes include interviews with experts who can help us along our faith journey. And other episodes include some short reflections on Scripture. Thank you for joining me. It's been a little more than a month, as of this recording anyway, since George Floyd died at the hands, make that the knee, of a Minneapolis, Minnesota police officer. Listeners to my previous podcast, titled Black Lives Matter, after the urgent cries made at numerous protests across the country, including here in Kansas and Nebraska, heard six of our African-American United Methodist clergy share their frustrations their concerns, and their hopes. All six of them told me that they need their white brothers and sisters in Christ to stand up and talk openly about justice for African Americans in America. Here's Rhonda Kingwood, pastor at Heart of Christ Church in Wichita. As a a Caucasian, a white person, you have to realize that racism has been going on ever since. And it didn't die because we had a black president. It didn't, it got worse. It did not leave. And I think so many times um, white folk live in a bubble and they act like, oh, no, we, we love you. No, 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 no. Uh, we don't see color. Well, I need you to see color. Don't, don't tell me you don't see color. I need you to see color. I need you to see my color. <laughs> Why is seeing color so important? Why haven't we moved past the color of a person's skin in the 21st century? It's because race is so ingrained into everything about America. Remember the Constitution. First, it approved of slavery, and second, it declared slaves not to be full people, only three-fifths of a person, in fact, and that was for the purpose of taxation and representation. I've heard the arguments of why it was important to have slaves counted at all, but can we at least agree on this premise, that it was not okay to have slaves, that it was just plain wrong? Here's Reverend Dr. Kevis Harding of Delrose United Methodist Church in Wichita. We need to talk about the, the original sin of America uh, and, and in the process, be careful. I mean, it's so frustrating for uh, particularly the black community in brown community, but I love seeing the millennials because it's showing a total different protest. It's multi-racial protest. I love it because it's usually just black folks, brown folks, protesting. No, it's everyone. Harding is talking about the protests around the country having lots and lots of people who look a lot like me, an average white person, marching in solidarity with African Americans. For many black folks across the country, the feeling has got to be, it's about time. Racial inequality, prejudice, and racism goes back to 1619, when the first slaves landed in colonial America. Actually, it probably predates that, but that shameful day from August 1619 set our country on a course for freedom from which we strayed and for which we are still struggling to correct the course. Now, however, we finally are seeing lots of white faces at rallies. White folks are speaking up. But is it enough? To be blunt, no. Here's Reverend Portia Cavett from Clare Memorial United Methodist Church in Omaha. You want to say, yes, I'm very passionate, but you want to say all black folks are just angry. Black folks this, black folks that. What about white folks? When are you going to get angry? When are you going to say enough is enough and we have to come together to bring about the change and that you are really the problem? Those are stinging words, but they're words we need to hear. 
they're words we need to understand. In this episode of In Layman's Terms, we're going to explore what we do next. How do we respond as disciples? And specifically, what can the majority, white people like me, do to start correcting 400 years of wrongs? I admit I might be oversimplifying things here, but I see racism as a discipleship issue. In Matthew 22, verses 36 through 40, we hear Jesus give us the greatest commandment is to love God with all our hearts, souls, and minds. And the second is to love our neighbors as ourselves. So how can we not love people who are made in the image of God? And if people of all races are our neighbors, how do we get this idea of love, or lack of love as the case may be, for them so wrong? I decided to turn to the Reverend Junius Dotson, the Chief Executive at Discipleship Ministries for the United Methodist Church and former lead pastor at Wichita St. Mark United Methodist Church. I asked Dotson what we needed to do to respond, and he gives us a good starting point. I could think about this in terms of um, you know, introspection, right? I mean, ha- having a willingness uh, to go deeper um, and a-, a willingness to acknowledge uh, white privilege, um, and I, I think that's a that is a and that's a starting point when you begin to understand that 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 my privilege, you know, really begins uh, with um, the fact that I exist as part of a system that intentionally has benefited me <laughs> for hundreds of years, and ironically, you know, uh, people get very defensive about these type of conversations, and I've heard. You know, I've had more than one uh, white person share with me, well, I didn't have anything to do with slavery. <laughs> you know, well, guess what? Your, your privilege didn't, didn't just start with slavery. Um, it continued year after year after year after year with laws that were designed to, to impose segregation, that laws that were designed uh, to, that, to prevent the transfer of wealth from generation to generation from laws that were designed to put black people in ghettos, segregated neighborhoods, uh, and to prevent economic opportunity for tax laws that did not favor the development of these areas. I mean, so that, you know, there's a reason, there, there are reasons why there, you know, a lot of black communities, there's a food desert, there's no supermarkets, there, there is no commerce, uh, because, because these communities historically have not been benefited with the same type of uh, responsibilities or the same type of advantages uh, that other neighborhoods have. So, I mean, all of these things are important, right, in beginning to get a, a deeper understanding of, this, of systemic racism. I actually um, wrote a blog about white silence. His blog was about his interaction with and his reflections on those interactions with a white friend who had sent him text messages. Dotson said the friend's text started by asking if he was doing okay in the aftermath of the death of George Floyd. But then it quickly turned to placing the burden, this burden of leadership uh, on my shoulders. And this is one of my white friends. And, you know, my response was that, race is not a black problem. If if black people could solve racism, it wouldn't exist. My challenge was uh, for her to begin to engage in conversation and begin to take leadership and ownership uh, of the fact that racism does exist, systemic racism does exist. Taking ownership. Those two words have great meaning. None of us wants to confess to something we didn't do, and we certainly don't want to have to face something we have done or condoned by our inaction or, as Dotson just mentioned, silence. Sometimes it may be a paralysis because of the enormity of the problem and a struggle to figure out how we can make a difference. Such was the crux of a Facebook post soon after George Floyd's death by the Reverend Kyle Reynolds. He's a white pastor at Center of Grace, an outreach ministry and the second campus for Olathe Grace United Methodist Church in Johnson County, Kansas. In his post, Reynolds openly talks about people being comfortable with a lack of action and a willingness for people, particularly white people, to criticize protests. He critiqued himself in his posts and others for allowing racism to continue. The whole thrust of my post was to ask folks, um, particularly white folks, to stay focused on, on 
our participation in systems and structures of injustice and racism and not allow ourselves to be sidetracked. In this season right now, it's about listening. Um, and I think that's what a lot of white folks need to begin with is listening um, and not coming to it with a, with a place of defensiveness, but just beginning to take the lead from folks who have already published and already put their voices out there um, and offered ways for us to continue to grow and to learn and to, to cultivate awareness, that's a huge first step. And that's where I find myself now having those conversations with people in my congregation, listening to those conversations where they're happening. The analogy I often turn to is the reflection in the mirror. We may not like what we see, but we often are disappointed with what we see. When it comes to racism, I'm convinced we need to hold up the mirror, study what we see, and be open to the criticism. Too often when it comes to race, criticism is met with intense defensiveness, so much so that we don't hear the message because we aren't listening to the criticism with the ideas of putting those remarks to heart. Instead, we tend to care more about deflection than introspection and change. Again, here's Junius Dotson. James Baldwin said this uh, about um, uh, America. He said, he said I, I love America more than any other country in this world. And exactly for this reason, I insist on the right to criticize her perpetually, right? So what does that mean? We take the issue of uh, police brutality. And people of color, black people in particular, have been talking about police brutality for years. And we've been talking about the fact that our lives are in danger by the police for years. We've been talking about racial profiling. We've been talking about a, a, a justice system where there are two Americas. We've been talking about all of these things for a long time, but there's been an unwillingness on the part of many uh, in uh, the predominant culture, white America, to acknowledge that brutality or systemic racism even exists on police forces. And so you hear things like, you know, black lives matter. No, all lives matter. Well, wow. So black lives matter emerges, the whole idea and concept of black lives matter emerges because black lives were being snuffed out without any acknowledgement. And so to say that when somebody says Black Lives Matter and your response is all lives matter, that's the, that you inflict even more violence on, the, on Black people. You, you fail to acknowledge their dignity. Black Lives Matter should not be a political statement. It is a value. Of course, Black Lives Matter. And the, 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 to me, the more appropriate response would be, why do you think Black lives are not being counted right now? Why do you think people are not valuing black lives? Or how is that happening? Educate yourself. And so that there's a sense of connection with real problems and there's a sense of empathy. If I can go a little deeper here, uh, Todd, you know, the, the core of discipleship is identity, right? Identity. Who are we as followers of Christ, believers in Jesus? Who, who are we? And there's a model, like the Jesus of Nazareth. And, and his personal mission statement in Luke 4. I mean, that, that's the model, right, of what it means to, to live uh, as a follower of Jesus, like in society. Um, but our identity uh, as believers, particularly in America, is more tied to, to what it means to be an American than it does to be a believer in Christ. And so, and, and, and just to think about how this connects, right? There's, a, there's an unwillingness to critique America. There is an unwillingness to critique the systems that create a, a disproportionate or disparities in healthcare, you know, for people of color. There is a, a, a defensiveness and an unwillingness to critique economic institutions that, uh, that disadvantage people of color. I mean, th this is where there has to be a willingness to critique these institutions. And I think that's part of our prophetic responsibility as believers in Christ. It's easy to say there's no systemic racism in policing when you're, you're not over-policed. 
you don't live in a, like your your neighborhood are not militarized. Um, it's it's easy to say that when you're not harassed by police officers on a constant basis. It's easy to say when somebody says Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, right? But for several reasons. Number one, you again you devalue Black Lives, but number two, and even more importantly, there is an unwillingness to critique that institution. Just because somebody critiques America does not mean we don't love America. Just because someone critiques policing does not mean we don't have respect for police officers. To offer a prophetic critique is our responsibility as both believers in Christ and certainly to listen to the testimonies of those who, have been, who are the victims of oppressive systems. They deserve to be heard so that when people are heard, then we can act in, uh, accordingly and we can act responsibly. The Reverend Steve Spencer serves as pastor at East Heights United Methodist Church in Wichita. We'll get more into his background in ministry later, but you need to know that he is a white man who has served in largely African-American congregations during his time in ministry, including at St. Mark in Wichita with Junius Dotson. Spencer doesn't hesitate when asked about how to get started with eradicating racism. It's about realizing where the problem starts. One of the things I've been noticing uh, over the past couple of weeks is a lot of Caucasians uh, in uh, prominent have been talking about racism or, or uh, Black Lives Matter or the national anthem and the flag. And, and they've ended up um, really getting themselves in a mess. Uh, they're, they're talking about these things. Uh, and just recently, a pastor in Georgia uh, was talking about uh, white um, uh, white blessing instead of white privilege. I don't know if you've seen that. And what it was a reminder to me is that as Caucasians, we need to listen so much more than we're talking and that we need to be willing, I, I believe, to be uncomfortable and listen to uncomfortable conversations and, and put ourselves in situations where where maybe we're not always the, the majority, that from there we can maybe learn. And, and uh, Tony Evans actually had a great, um, who's a pastor from in Dallas, I think his church he's leading is 9,500 uh, members. He uh, does a lot of uh, curriculum and Bible studies, um, but he offered um, a way that you and I Caucasians might respond. And it, it first means, that we have to have a heart to change it, it that you know uh, let there be peace on earth well let it begin with me uh, maybe let there be an end to racism let it begin with me and so it really means that we have to have a heart to eradicate racism it's not a uh, black problem it's a caucasian problem and that's one of the things that junius noted in his in his article that he, uh, his blog, and it went viral. So, so Pastor Evans noted that really, if we're looking to make changes in and stand against racism, we have to have a heart and desire to do it. And I would lift up, it's not comfortable. When we return to in layman's terms, I want to share with you a few stories that Steve Spencer told me. I hope that they'll inspire you to help eradicate racism. Matthew 28 tells us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. But how can you do that? You can help by providing some inspiration each morning to someone else. Just go to www.greatplainsumc.org slash dailydevotions. Once there, you'll find a QR code and a link to a sign-up page. Pick your day and your topic. If you need some assistance, there's even a link to the Vanderbilt University Daily Lectionary. Follow the instructions for submitting your devotion, and you've done your part to help inspire and encourage others in their Christian walk. Again, that's www.greatplainsumc.org slash dailydevotions. Help make more disciples today.
back to in layman's terms. We're continuing our look at racism in America and hopefully sharing some things you can do to help transform yourself and your community. So far, we've talked about the importance of white Americans to listen so we can expand our minds past our own sheltered experiences. One person who has not sought out the shelter of whiteness, and I say that in quotes, is Steve Spencer. I told you a few moments ago that he has an interesting background. I want to share a few stories that he told me now. I think they reveal why he has a passion for eradicating racism and how he came to understand the concept of white privilege so he could be a better servant of Christ. I was actually um, a television reporter in Jonesboro, Arkansas. And that's actually where also I met my wife uh, when we were uh, at the station there in Jonesboro. But one of the, the segments I did for the five o'clock uh, news uh, cast was uh, where in the world is Steve? So I go all over uh, parts of Arkansas and Missouri and, and Tennessee and I go to places and then kind of give them clues on where I was at and then at the end I tell them. Well, one of the places that I went to was uh, in, in Memphis. We were about an hour away from Memphis at um, the Lorraine Hotel. It's the place where Dr. Martin, Martin Luther King was assassinated. It's been turned into a, a civil rights museum. Well, one of the, the my colleagues was an African-American uh, woman that I had developed a friendship with. And, and oftentimes we would go out and um, different reporters would go out together to help shoot a story. And I always needed a photographer. So she came out with me because we were going to the Lorraine. And um, so we went there and I really had no clue what I was getting myself into or what I, what I was going to experience. Um, and so in the beginning, we just came in as, as people that were um, going to experience the museum. And I can tell you this, I looked on it and I experienced as it as history. But when you see the, the hoods and the, the burning crosses and all the KKK imagery and, and uh, the, the strikes and all the things that were going on uh, in that time and against African-Americans, and it looked out throughout the history, tears were rolling down her face. It wasn't just a history book or a history lesson. It was real life because she grew up in Chicago and she experienced some of the same racist attitudes and experiences that we were seeing in the museum. And then I did my story, um, but it was from a very different perspective. When you see the unmade bed where Dr. King uh, had been sleeping or, or some of the other artifacts that were there, it put things in a different perspective. And it opened me to this concept of racism and, and how it has impacted our country. I had a colleague during my time in newspapers who boldly proclaimed often that journalism was the Lord's work because of how we work to share truth and bring wrongdoing into the light. Steve Spencer may have started in TV journalism, but he obviously is now a pastor doing the Lord's work. Here's his brief ministry story and how those experiences have helped him grow as a Christian. God just was working on me. And so I ended up going to San Francisco Theological Seminary in uh, San Anselmo, California. It's a Presbyterian seminary. And at the time I told God, I said, okay, I'll go to seminary, but I don't want to be a pastor, which isn't really brilliant, is it? You know, you don't go to seminary to not become most cases become a pastor. Well, in any case, I met uh, Reverend Dr. James McRae there, who was the senior pastor of Jones Memorial United Methodist Church in downtown San Francisco. It was the oldest African-American Methodist church in San Francisco. And we developed a friendship because he was an adjunct professor at SFTS. And he, we we had a connection. He was a great mentor to me and invited me to be a part of uh, children and youth ministries. Really, I was working to develop a youth and young adult experience on Saturday nights, and we called it Saturday Night Alive. And, and so we, it was an inner city project. I worked with uh, inner city uh, YMCA and different rec leagues and people all around and to build up this, this ministry. 
And it, from that experience, I graduated sem seminary and I was able to, I applied for, because <laughs> I still didn't want to be a pastor. Remember this. I applied for children and youth ministry uh, position at Church of the Cross in Salina, Kansas. So I served there for about three and a half years. And, and I, I should say a uh, backstory, Reverend James McRae, uh, when we were at annual conference in, in California, introduced me to uh, Junius Dotson. We had lunch and, and that was it. And he told me that um, he had served at Jones, but then he had started a church in Silicon Valley, I think in the San Jose area. Well, Junius um, said he was going to be leaving his church in San Jose to um, become the senior pastor at a church in Wichita, Kansas. Now, don't take any offense, Kansas folks, but I was like, why on earth would you want to go to Wichita, Kansas? And then sure enough, about, uh, I want to say six months or so later, I'm driving, I'm coming out to Salina, Kansas, uh, and I'm taking the position as a uh, children and youth director there. Over the course of time, I, I run into Junius a couple times, and then he he and actually Mitch, Re Mitch Reese were uh, on the interview team for uh, my ordination. You know, so I went from probationary to ordination, and in the midst of that, Junius uh, was interviewing me. I was sharing some of my experiences at Jones and then at uh, Church of the Cross, and uh, later. I was appointed as the youth director at St. Mark. And, and I also did youth and multimedia. Then later I was the executive pastor there. That experience at St. Mark and at Jones just opened my eyes up to um, just a small glimpse of what maybe African-Americans deal with uh, all the time. And here's what I'll lift up. Uh, when I was at a, a Good Friday um, service in downtown San Francisco. I was invited there by uh, Reverend McCray, and I was sitting in the auditorium. It's several thousand seats, and they were doing the seven last words. <laughs> and in the midst of that, I look around, and I had a realization. I'm just about the only Caucasian person in that entire building. And up until that time, I'd been in the Air Force. I've done a number of things. I, never, I don't think I've ever had that realization that I'm the only one. Now, I'd flip that. And in most contexts, Af African-Americans are the only one in the midst of uh, many uh, Caucasians. We don't, what it gave me is that I don't think that way. As a white male, I, I, I don't operate in that where I might be the only one. I'm the majority. And so that gave me a little glimpse. And then, of course, at St. Mark, it, predominantly African-American, but we had some Caucasians and other uh, minorities there. But working in that context and also working uh, over the course of those two um, uh, ministries, I worked under two African-American men that were uh, very successful, uh, great leaders, and I learned a lot but I also had a, a, was so blessed to, to be serving in that context. Spencer had other stories about the privilege that comes with being white. Times he was out for meals with the Wichita St. Mark team, and they often weren't seated promptly at a restaurant until he came forward. Times when a staff member would call on the church's behalf and would be denied until he, with his Caucasian-sounding voice, made the same call. I was called the closer, and we laughed about it. But underneath the current was this kind of feeling of white privilege. These things are subtle. And, and sometimes it, it is a thing, but uh, oftentimes as a Caucasian male, I don't realize it. When we return to in layman's terms, we'll share some thoughts about books about what actions you can take from the voting booth and the power of prayer.
How does your church celebrate big events? How does it gather the community together? How does it sometimes introduce you to people you might not have known? Many times in the Great Plains, it's with a potluck dinner. And that's what we try to do with our podcast, Potluck. This is David Burke from the Great Plains Conference and host of Potluck, where we do, in audio form, all the things a potluck dinner does. Celebrate big events, gather the community, and introduce you to new and interesting people. Listen to Potluck, available at greatplainsumc.org. Welcome back to In Layman's Terms. Today we're talking about what we can do in response to racism, particularly as white people who can stand up for justice for our African-American brothers and sisters in Christ, as well as other people of color. I want to spend a few minutes sharing some ideas of how each of us can respond, but first, let's hear a reminder of why this is so important. Here again is Junius Dotson, and remember as you listen that he's a longtime pastor, a respected author, and the chief executive of Discipleship Ministries. I've shared this publicly uh, on many occasions. I, I have been, you know, on the other end of a police officer's gun three times in my life. Three times. Um, and th- that has to be above average, right? Um, I, I have uh, experienced uh, firsthand, you know, what it's like to be racially profiled. Um, I have experienced firsthand what it's like to have someone perceive you as a threat. I have experienced firsthand what it's like to have a police officer um, pull you over uh, for uh, a, a U-turn, a, a illegal U-turn, um, when it was not my intent to make an illegal U-turn for the record, but to be pulled over with my family in the car and to be talked to like I was a two-year-old in a condescending way and to try to maintain my voice level so that this police officer does not perceive me as a threat. And so I'm the person who is trying to de-escalate a simple encounter with the police. And these are the things that I, I think a lot of my brothers and sisters, my siblings in Christ, people of color want you know, white people to hear. <laughs> I want you to hear these stories because they're true, they're real. These experiences are not some a figment of our imaginations or some paranoia in our minds. These are the things that happen on an ongoing recurring basis. And so I, I, I lift that up to you because until we start hearing those stories and really beginning to say, you know, you know, we, there is systemic racism. There's a culture of racism. Now, that doesn't mean that police officers by and large, are not good people. That doesn't, that doesn't even mean that 99% of police officers, whatever number I hear all the time, 99.3% of all police officers, you know what? It's really irrelevant but because they exist as part of a system. They exist as part of a culture that devalues Black life. And until that acknowledgement is made, these systems are so ingrained in us that uh, it's going to be hard for there to be meaningful change, right? Dotson went on to speak about the subject we touched on earlier, white privilege. The misnomer is, well, if I give up privilege, you know, if I acknowledge my privilege, then, you know, I'm losing something, right? No, you're gaining something. What you're gaining is your understanding that we're all created in the image of God. And if we're all created uh, in the image of God, then there's something about equality, there's something about equity, there's something about justice. I mean, all of these things are a part of what it means to be a believer in Christ. Uh, being, you know, uh, racist or being, um, or, or not acknowledging your, your uh, economic privilege uh, is, uh, th- to me, that's incompatible, you know, w- with, with the gospel. Though it just really is incompatible. So what do we do about it? That is the whole point of these discussions, right? Let's start by admitting that we need to learn. I'm going to step out of bounds here for just a moment, and I'm going to recommend three books to you that I personally have found to be very enlightening. I'm really glad I read the first two last year because they've really helped me process and navigate our current realities. They're both by Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, who is just starting a new position at Boston University. His first book is titled Stamped from the Beginning. 
In it, Dr. Kendi examines racism and the way people of different skin colors relate to one another through five figures in history, their actions, and the cultures of their times. Puritan Cotton Mather, President Thomas Jefferson, abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, scholar W.E.B. Du Bois, and social change activist Angela Davis. The second book is his most recent work, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Framed as his memoir of growing up black in America, Kendi walks us through what it's like to be at those very stages of life that we all must go through on our way to adulthood. Spoiler alert, it's more difficult as an African American in this country. And I'm currently reading The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America by Richard Rothstein. It's basically a 10,000-foot level history of how government policies enabled redlining and other racist strategies to prevent mingling of the races. Here again is Kyle Reynolds from Olathe, Kansas, talking about choices he finds himself making now. Who I'm listening to, um, um, where, what media I'm, I'm consuming, um, who I'm following on Twitter, things like that. I think that matters because one of the biggest issues that we experience as white folks who, who don't think about racism because we don't have to think about race because America has defined white as normal and everything else is not, is we, 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 lose the, we lose track of the concerns that other folks have because we just never think about it. And a lot of white middle-class people live in white middle-class neighborhoods. And so um, where we can make choices about the voices we listen to, that's one thing that, that I'm doing. And that goes from um, books and theological reading as a pastor to, to Twitter. Um, and, and how one gets uh, their news sources. So that's been a piece of it. Um, I, I've shared with my congregation that I changed my whole reading list um, and I've invited folks in the church to be a part of that. And so um, right now we're reading, uh, we're, we're getting ready to start next week, um, how to be an anti-racist. And I've, I'm about two thirds of the way through that book. And I'll tell you, I'm gonna read it about four more times because um, that's what it's going to take for some of it to sink in. It's been really challenging. Steve Spencer from Wichita shared how he's built the lessons against racism into his sermons and how he's expanding his own understanding of what African-Americans are experiencing. One of the things I'm doing right now is a series, you know, John Wesley's Three Simple Rules. And we were talking about do no harm last week. And, and I, I, I lifted up three way, or four ways that, that we can... Uh, help to stand against racism. And that's first by being educated, right? Having a willingness to, to learn. And that means reading books or, or watching documentaries, uh, some things that will inform us about what's going on in the African-American world, what people of color are experiencing on a re regular basis. And that, that means that uh, we might need, need to read authors like James Baldwin, and there's a, a great um, movie that's on uh, Amazon Prime called I'm Not Your Negro. And holy crow, that will just open up your, your mind. And he's a, a, a great author and a great writer and has some powerful quotes. Because one of them is, and I'm paraphrasing, he loved this country and that's why he's criticizing it. And if we love this country, we really need to be introspective and see how racism has benefited us you know, white privilege, and then how we can say, I want to relinquish some of that so um, that others can come to the table and be a part of what we're supposed to be, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, freedom, and justice for all. We started this episode listening to Pastor Rhonda Kingwood from Heart of Christ Church in Wichita. Here's what she had to say to white people about how they can help. Her ideas range from the water cooler to the voting booth. I heard someone say, when you hear something, a joke or something that deals with African-Americans, speak up. Don't just sit and let that happen. And so I think those are the things that individuals can do. None of us have a magic bullet. None of us have this uh, thing that we know for sure is going to work. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we have to think about legislation. We've got to think about you know how we... Um, you know, affect change um, in this. And, and one of the biggest things is, you know, we got to understand that our local votes are just as uh, important as our national votes. And so we got two votes 
in August and November. Man, every I mean, it ought to be in, in droves that folk are out voting. So I think that's the thing, helping people get to the polls. I want to back up what Kingwood said just then. We focus a lot on presidential elections, which we certainly should. But so, so many more decisions that impact our communities are made at city halls and in county commission chambers and even in school board meetings than ever take place in the halls of Congress. What policies are those local candidates hoping to introduce? Ask the question and vote for those who will govern with equality and justice in mind. I now want to turn to someone we met in our last episode, Reverend Dee Williamston. She's a district superintendent in the Great Plains Conference. She and Rhonda Kingwood teamed up to launch a prayer initiative for Kansas and Nebraska. Using the hashtags GPPray846 and End Racism, the goal is to take the time from June 19th, Juneteenth, the commemoration of the end of slavery in the United States, until July 19th, each and every day, to pray for an end to racism. The 846 symbolizes the 8 minutes and 46 seconds that George Floyd was pinned down by a police officer's knee. And you can take part in this initiative in several ways. Pray once a day, or multiple times a day, for 8 minutes and 46 seconds. Or, pray for racial justice at 846 a.m. and 846 p.m. every day. Or, pause at the 46th minute of every hour for a short breath prayer. And those are just a few ideas. Here's Williamston. So the prayer initiative started off with a conversation I had with uh, Pastor Rhonda Kingwood down in Wichita. Uh, I had been talking to a lot of the African-American pastors, just kind of checking in. And um, so as we were talking and thinking about what can we do, she mentioned prayer. We could be praying and that the bishops had an initiative uh, coming up that just came out, I think, on Juneteenth. She's referencing an initiative by the Council of Bishops. You'll find links to it on the Great Plains Conference website from our racial justice page. And I didn't have that letter at that point, but I was like, oh, great. Well, then we'll just get the conference to to do, you know, this idea of 7 p.m. praying on that Tuesday uh, and uh, get all the churches involved to pray for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And so from that, after we had that happen and the bishop's letter came out from the bishop's council and the initiative uh, to pray for the next 30 days, I was texting Rhonda back and forth, and I thought, well, maybe this is something that the conference could just take on to keep this before us, that we need to be praying, um, because prayer is a key to uh, change. You know, we've got to keep praying. And, you know, the scripture talks about in Second uh, Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and heal the land. And that's the thing that everybody can do is pray. You know, we can all lift up prayers because God will hear our prayers if we prayers if we turn our face to God, you know, and 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 have God help us through this because we we have to upgird this in prayer. And the prayer initiative, it has to be a constant thing. It's like praying, praying without ceasing. We have to continuously pray because you can't just pray one or two or four times and you and and think that four hundred years of oppression is gonna go away or four hundred years of systematic racism is going to go away. It's going to take more than one prayer or two prayers. This is a constant thing. Uh, pray without ceasing because we have to pray down those strongholds. We've got to pray down, you know, the spiritual forces of wickedness. And so uh, this is something that even my mother can do is to pray. You know, this is something uh, because she's, she lives in a care facility, you know, that's something she can do, actively do. You know, that's something we can actively do together. And so I think it's important that that be uh, the first thing that we are doing is that we are praying uh, as a people, praying as a conference, uh, praying as uh, communities, uh, and that God's people are lifting up prayers because prayer will change things. And if, and, and the beauty about prayer, it'll change you, you know, because it has to be a heart change as well for everyone. That number seems almost insurmountable, doesn't it? 400 years? I want to close with Junius Dotson. He's going to first share about the cumulative effect of racism and then provide a discipleship perspective on our efforts to end racism. You know, almost feeling a sense of trauma. Um, it's stressful being a, a black man in America. It's stressful um, walking, uh, uh, jogging through a neighborhood. Like I've 
like when this event, well, actually when the Armored Aubrey event uh, happened, um, I, you know, I, I, I run. And I actually changed my, my, my route that I no longer go run through neighborhoods. And I was running through a pretty exclusive neighborhood. Um, and I changed my route. Uh, I don't live in an exclusive neighborhood, by the way. I was just running through there. <laughs> so, um, so I was, um, you know, I, I changed my route. So I was a more public route in, um, in public streets because um, I was worried. To be quite frankly, I was worried. Um, it's stressful going into stores and to always be conscious of how others are perceiving you. Like, I don't want persons to perceive I'm trying to steal something. I don't want the clerk to perceive that, you know, I have no, no intention of purchasing something or whatever the case may be. So even if I'm going to a store, and, you know, a retail store and I'm buying lots of things, I'll take whatever I have in my hand, I'll take it to the counter, then I'll keep shopping. Um, and, you know, it's stressful um, getting, being on the elevator and having to yeah, I'm engaging, I'm, no, I'm a normally friendly person, but you know, engaging in conversation because you, you know, you just made somebody nervous. Um, you know, those sort of things, they, they add up. And, um, and, and these are the things that, that cause, uh, it, they, these things shave years off your, of, of your life, you know, uh, as black people who live in America. Um, so, you know, all of these things I think contribute to um, how I was feeling, but quite frankly, how a lot of people of color, black men uh, and women uh, in particular were feeling uh, after the George Floyd incident. And of course, you know, what just happened uh, in Atlanta. Um, so I, I share that uh, because uh, I think it's important, you know, for people to hear that. I, I think a lot of people see these things as isolated incidents, uh, but for us, they're not isolated accumulative uh, and the pain just it builds and it grows um, and each one becomes more and more difficult you know to process it takes a little long takes a look takes a little longer uh, to process these things as we try to, to you know regroup engage in conversation and try to go make meaningful change the death of George Floyd prompted Dotson and discipleship ministries to alter their plans amid the reopening of church buildings after shutting down because of the covid 19 pandemic from a discipleship perspective, uh, you know, we were actually planning, we actually had planned a conference on regathering as churches were making plans to uh, come back uh, to their buildings. And uh, we kind of called an audible on the regathering piece. And, and so it was regathering in the midst of two viruses, the, the racism and, uh, you know, the pandemic. So we had this conversation about uh, racism and systemic racism and trying to elicit, you know, some honest uh, responses uh, from persons and leaders across our uh, denomination. And obviously we started thinking about this, talking about this just in terms of the what's contemporary, what's happening right now. But uh, obviously I believe it has some deeper implications for uh, discipleship, right? What it means to, to be disciples. And I think having uh, these type of conversations uh, is important. And uh, I believe it, it begins to open up um, the, the lenses and different perspectives. And uh, so I think these type of conversations are very, very, very important. Uh, secondly, I would say take responsibility. Uh, is, it's take responsibility to educate yourself. And there are you know, a variety of uh, resources uh, that can help um, white people <laughs> understand the, the systemic nature of racism. Racism didn't just start two weeks ago. Uh, racism didn't just start with the, the, you know, the death of George Floyd. And I think uh, educating uh, oneself about the nature of systemic racism is very, very important. Uh, thirdly, I would say, uh, you know, start connecting with organizations that are in your area. Uh, that may be addressing uh, issues as it relates to uh, criminal uh, reform, uh, the you know, uh, policing reform, all of this. So I think there are organizations that exist, you know, engage in those conversations. Uh, I think that would be an important, uh, important piece of this. So, I mean, I think those are some immediate ways uh, to, to really begin uh, to engage uh, the process of eradicating uh, systemic racism. 
Folks, let's be honest with each other right now. Racism isn't a problem that's going to be solved in a few weeks' time. But if each of us do something in our little part of the world, starting today, and if we pass that along to our children, there is hope. As white people, I feel like we need to do several things. First, listen a lot more and talk a lot less. I think we need to read to learn. TV is great, don't get me wrong. But books on the subject of systemic racism do a much better job of expanding the mind and digging into the heart of the matter. Next, white pastors and people with a platform need to use their influence to talk about racism. As you heard Steve Spencer say in this episode, the conversation can get uncomfortable. And that's okay. We can do it. Our Savior wasn't comfortable hanging on the cross, amen? He died for all. So what can we do to usher in the kingdom of God on earth? Finally, we can keep on standing up, marching, praying, anything and everything to show that black lives really do matter and that we are all created in the image of an all-knowing, always-present, all-powerful, loving God. If we each as individuals can do our part, then collectively we will, indeed, live up to the United Methodist Church's mission of making disciples of Jesus Christ, and together we will change a country, and we will change the world. In Layman's Terms is a podcast sponsored by the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church and by me, your host, Todd Seifert. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go rate us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. It helps other people find us. And please, if you feel so inclined, share us on Facebook or other social media. Our music comes via a licensed subscription with FirstCom Music. You can find archived podcasts on my website, toddseifert.com, or via a link on the conference website, greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts. Feel free to email me any questions or suggestions to tseifert at greatplainsumc.org, and I'll do my best to respond as quickly as possible. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, please do what you can to help make more disciples of Jesus Christ. You can play a small part in helping change a life.